Well, good morning and welcome to uh, our teaching service this morning. It's always a little unnerving to a speaker whenever, just before he gets up, the chairman announces that he's going to speak on a different chapter from the one he has prepared. Um, So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 19, please. If you're looking at the Pew Bibles, the Black Pew Bibles, it's page 928. But we're looking this morning at how the gospel comes to Ephesus. Actually, Nick was quite right uh, in that Paul makes a brief visit to the church at Ephesus, or to Ephesus, the city, in Acts chapter 18. But his main visit then on his third missionary journey is in chapter 19. Now, we're going to take time to read uh, most of this chapter. Now, I'm reading from the New International Version. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then, What baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, that's uh, known languages, uh, and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for about two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they, ran out of the, that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Just down to verse 23. This is called the riot in Ephesus. 
About that time, there was a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great god of Artemis will be desecrated, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions, from Macedonia and rushed as one man to the theatre. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. And uh, just for a final reading, um, down to verse, sorry, over to chapter 20. Chapter 20, Paul meets with the elders at Ephesus, and in verse 21, he says this, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, I know that was a rather lengthy reading, but it's, uh, it's important, I think, for us to understand what happened when the gospel came to Ephesus. Last week, David Farrell gave us a, an excellent overview of Paul's third missionary journey. That's the journey that started in Antioch on the right of the map at the screen. It went through Turkey, uh, over to Greece, and then returned eventually to Jerusalem. And on both the second and third journeys, we read about how the gospel came to different cities. And each city had its own religion, its own false religion, or its own philosophy, and its own outlook on the world. And Christianity, with its emphasis on truth, on absolute truth, was really counter to every culture. Every culture, naturally, um, is based on something other than truth. And so the gospel, when it came to all these various cities, it challenged the worldview of every society it encountered. Each city was different, but the gospel challenged every worldview. Now, by worldview, what do we mean? What we mean is how you look at the world. We all have a worldview. Uh, It may be a Christian worldview, 
where we know that God created the world, that God created us, that God had a purpose in creating us. We believe that we needed to be saved and that the Lord Jesus saved us. That, that whole understanding uh, puts our lives in a very different context. Or you may believe that there is no God. That's part of, maybe part of your worldview, that the world and life are here by accident, that we're the result of random forces of nature, the result of unintelligent evolution. Now, if you believe that, then that is how you look at the world. That's how you interpret everything that happens in the world. It affects your view of yourself as well. You don't see any God. You don't uh, believe in life after death. You don't see any basis for having a purpose uh, for your life. So each city in Acts had its own worldview. Acts gives us enough details and enough information to identify the different worldviews of each of the major cities that Paul came to and how the gospel challenged that worldview and changed the society in many cases. This morning, what we're going to do is to zoom into one of those cities that Paul visited. That's the city of Ephesus. Now, Paul stayed in Ephesus three years. I think that was the longest he spent in any of his cities as he was on his missionary journeys. If you notice uh, how chapter 19 begins, it tells us how Paul reached there, not by sea, but he went along one of the trade routes, the standard trade routes, that brought all the trade from the east to Ephesus. Ephesus was a port, and a lot of the trade then was transported to other parts of the Roman Empire. Now, I know some of you have visited Ephesus, lucky people. Uh, There's still quite a few of the archaeological remains there. And, uh, uh, for example, this is a, a photograph of one of the main streets that goes down towards the harbor, or at least what used to be the harbour. The harbour that Ephesus is now uh, a long distance away because it has silted up. But this was probably one of the main roads, the Curetus Road, uh, that went down to the harbour. Now, there's some of it left, but based on the remains that are there, someone has reconstructed what it might have looked like in Paul's day. Uh, And Paul, you can just imagine Paul walking along this road, looking at the shops, looking at the statues, looking at what was for sale, and picking up from that what these people really believed in and what they lived for. One of the most impressive remains is the big amphitheater. This is the theater that we just read about in chapter 19, where the riot took place. I mean, it can hold thousands and thousands, and they would have performed uh, plays, often Greek plays, uh, which again presented the Greeks' worldview of all their many different gods and how uh, they interacted with this world. So that, that was the, uh, the theatre, the amphitheatre where the riot took place. What I'd like to do, though, is just to to point out to you how uh, the text at, in Acts 19 identifies the key driving forces behind the society in Ephesus. And I think we can pick out three key components of the pagan worldview which prevailed in Ephesus. 
The first one is what we read about is the temple of Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. And the city was dominated in more ways than one by the temple of Artemis and by the whole religion. Now, the background to this is that a large meteorite seemed to have fallen from the sky and landed near Ephesus. And the people interpreted this as something from heaven. And they said that this was a representative, a representation of a god called Artemis. So she became known as Artemis of the Ephesians. The fact that this stone actually came from heaven to Ephesus was a sign to them that they were special, that heaven had singled them out, had chosen them. And so their religion became a matter of pride. It became a symbol of their cultural identity, and it gave them status throughout the whole of Asia and even beyond. And if you spoke uh, against Artemis, you were attacking the very identity of people at Ephesus. So this temple to Artemis really was a key component of the worldview of people in Ephesus. They saw themselves uh, with some pride as being the custodians and the guardians of Artemis, the goddess Artemis of the Ephesians. That affected their outlook on life, how they viewed the city, and it was going to affect how they responded to the message of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing to bear in mind about their worldview. The second thing to bear in mind is, goes back to the books that were burned. If you go to Ephesus today, you'll see at least a facade of a library now, this actually isn't the same library that Paul would have visited. That, the one that Paul visited was destroyed by an earthquake, and uh, is, is the one that we have today was rebuilt uh, after that. But nevertheless, even at the time of Paul, Ephesus was known for its books. Now, they were probably scrolls, but let's call them books. And books in those days were very important. The library in Ephesus at the time of Paul was probably their most important educational asset. In those days, you didn't buy books. You went to the library and you consulted the books. You had to go to the books. The books did not come to you. And the books attracted a lot of visiting scholars to the city of Ephesus. And if a city had a library, it became almost like a university city. And sometimes you had to pay to consult them. And these books were extremely valuable. But the books that we read about in Acts chapter 19, the ones that were burned, were not typical books. They weren't about general knowledge. They weren't about science. They weren't about geography. They weren't literature like Greek plays. They were about sorcery. That's how Acts describes them. Now, some translate that as magic but it was more than magic. They contained magic spells claiming to be able to contact the unseen world of spirits. It's what we would call today the occult or the spirit world. And these books promoted the idea that there is a world of spirits which can be controlled, can be manipulated, can be even used uh, if you use the right magic spells and the right wording. 
And so these books purported to include or contain spells, the words that you would use if you wanted to cast a spell on someone. Perhaps if you hated someone and you wanted to destroy them, you would put one of these curses or spells on them. And so these books encouraged people's hatred and people often lived in fear of the spirit world. So this is another aspect of their worldview at Ephesus here, the whole spirit world. Some people think that dabbling in the spirit world is benign and harmless. But did you notice, as we read, the use of the phrase evil spirits? Not just spirits, but evil spirits. That phrase occurs four times in the book of Acts. And all four times, it's Ephesus. Only Ephesus. Uh, and in this chapter that we have read. So the spirit world, the occult, is evil. It's not simply neutral. Now, it might seem strange to find that view of the world in a sophisticated city like Ephesus. But there are cultures and societies in our world today where people live in fear of evil spirits. And they have this constant consciousness of spirits uh, around, and they maybe have things in their house to drive away evil spirits. So if, if you're familiar with that sort of a culture, then you will be familiar with the worldview of Ephesus as well. Now, the people who owned these books uh, were keeping people in Ephesus living in this mindset. The owners themselves may not have believed all the mumbo-jumbo in their books, but they were able to make a lot of money out of it. Uh, and that brings us to the third driver in the city of Ephesus, and that is business. And Luke highlights the role played by business in Ephesus and the influence which business held often behind the scenes over everyday life. And business was not separate from religion and from this uh, view of the spirit world. It rode on the back of those and exploited both of them. For example, you'll see, on, if you can make out the coin on the left, that's a silver coin from Ephesus with a picture of Artemis of the Ephesians, a picture of the statue uh, that represented her. Money and religion, you can see, were associated, very closely associated in Ephesus. And the silversmiths, like Demetrius, made expensive models of Artemis, the same uh, that is on the coin, and they sold these people, they sold these uh, shrines to tourists and to religious people who um, were sincere in wanting to worship the god, goddess of Ephesus. Now, these businessmen themselves, you get the impression they're really rather cynical in their view of the religion. For them, it's a business opportunity. So the businessmen may not have believed anything about the religion itself, but they were exploiting people's religious fervor and sincerity. But business is business, and religion is a good opportunity for making money. It is now, it was at the time of Paul at Ephesus. And the books too, or the scrolls, they were extremely valuable and a great way of making money. If someone wanted to consult these books, uh, you could charge for that. Did you notice how much these books were cost? The ones, even just the ones that were burned. It says 50,000 drachmas 
and, and uh, a drachma was about a day's wages. If you do the calculation, if I'm right, it comes out to over three million pounds. So these people were burning three million pounds worth of books. That's how much these books were associated with business. They were big money. And the money was also, they, were, they enabled their owners to make money by pushing a worldview of spirits and the spirit world. Now, what effect did these three things have on the worldview of society at Ephesus? Particularly when we think of the riots that uh, took place in that uh, amphitheater. The story, what led to it? Well, you can certainly say that the people in Ephesus were passionate. That's the, the kind word that we would use nowadays. They were very passionate about what they believed. But there was a great anger in it. So much so that Paul was warned, don't come near this place, they'll kill you. So the people at Ephesus, they, they had their strong belief in their identity, their religion. They felt special because of that. Also, the spirit world and so on, these uh, ideologies that were, were made up and that they had imbibed uh, made them very passionate, emotional, and angry. But also their reaction whenever their religion, they felt their religion was being challenged was they did not apply reason or rational discussion. They just shouted. For over two hours, they shouted. And there's that interesting phrase that says, some of them didn't even know why they were there. They were just shouting. That's how they defended their religion. And that's interesting because when it came to the religion, They didn't use reason. They didn't engage in rational discussion. They just shouted, shouted their fundamental beliefs. And that was uh, something of how they responded. And that was the effect of their worldview. And as a result of the, the worldview that they had, they were easily manipulated. You notice how easy it was for these businessmen to get the crowd whipped up into a frenzy. They were concerned about how their business was dropping, but what they said was, this is an attack on our national identity and on our religious uh, position uh, with Artemis of the Ephesians. And that's what happens. Sometimes when people are very passionate and when they don't reason about things, they become very easy to manipulate Their worldview was based not on absolute truth, but on a whole set of half-truths and even sheer lies. The people lost their instinct to question their own worldview and to examine statements carefully to see if they were true. They behaved as a mob and in many ways, you would say, like an unthinking animal. That if you poke it, it just turns on you and tries to bite you. Now, I think we can see little hints of that even in our own society today. And you often see it on social media. Someone only has to make a a statement perhaps about the gender issue, perhaps disagreeing with the current uh, trendy view about gender matters, and you get a whole mob of people reacting angrily and emotionally, not engaging in rational discussion and examination of the issues just saying, you're wrong, you're hateful, uh, you're guilty of transphobia, 
And uh, claims are often made on the internet, and people don't investigate them to see if they are true. Our society is beginning to become a little bit, I think, like the society at Ephesus, where people respond emotionally, and the ability to debate fundamental issues using reason and careful argument is gradually disappearing. And that must tell us something about the worldview of our society today. So what happens then when the gospel comes to a society like that? What was Paul's strategy when he came to Ephesus? It's interesting that he went and, you notice, he hired a lecture hall. He did not, uh, and it says there, he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. Now, even for just from that little description, we get a number of uh, uh, insights into Paul's strategy. He did not shout in response to the Ephesians shouting about what they believed in. He did not compromise by abandoning reason. He took two years, day after day, discussing with people about their, what they believed and what Paul believed. You notice that he did it in a lecture hall. Some, your version may just say a hall. Your version may say a school. But he didn't do it in church, which is interesting. It was a lecture hall, and you may say, oh, dear Paul, how academic. Would it not have been better to have hired maybe a hotel or a restaurant? But Paul is deliberately confronting this society's lack of reason, its rejection of reasonable and rational argument. He did not shout at them. The Ephesians would have quite liked that. They would have understood that. But it says he discussed. And also it wasn't a hit-and-run campaign every day for two years. Now, I grew up in a church culture where evangelism consisted of a preacher shouting at the congregation for an hour every Sunday evening. There was no rational discussion. And perhaps that may have been appropriate for the generation uh, that I was brought up with. But our society has changed and has become more like the society in Ephesus. And uh, uh, that's why our church has changed and begun to adapt to the changes in society so that we can present the gospel the way Paul did uh, at Ephesus. And we move towards Paul's approach. Much of our, most of our evangelism is done in small discussion groups, perhaps in Bible studies, in serious one-to-one -one discussion, perhaps with friends, or perhaps over hospitality, perhaps over a cup of tea or coffee uh, after the service. That's a much more biblical approach for our present generation. So that was Paul's, the first step of Paul's strategy. Do you notice then the next strategy, and this wasn't Paul's strategy, it was God's strategy. God confronted the evil spirit world. The first incident about those followers who are essentially followers of John the Baptist um, and hadn't yet become Christians, do you notice the role of the Holy Spirit in a society where people were very conscious of evil spirits? It's the Holy Spirit who is very prominent at the start of Paul's visit. And God did miracles through Paul. And it was God's miracles, not Paul's, 
And uh, not only were people healed of their illnesses, but it says that evil spirits were cast out. So here we have God confronting the evil spirit world that was part of Ephesus society. And finally, Paul says in chapter 20, he says, these are the words he says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Paul accepted no money for his ministry. What a contrast with Demetrius. What a contrast with the whole society, the business world of Ephesus, that saw religion as a way of getting money from people. Paul was quite the opposite. He refused to accept money from people. Sadly, some so-called Christian evangelists uh, that we hear about become wealthy through their ministry. They change their message to extract money from people. And what they're really saying is, we believe in the same gods that you believe in, in society. Paul went to great lengths to show that his attitude to money uh, was totally different from the worldview in Ephesus. And those who try to make money from religion have no message for society. They just believe the same. And the last detail we get actually from the town clerk at the riot, who said uh, to calm the crowd down and said, look, these men that you're shouting about, he says, they have not robbed our temple and they have not just blasphemed our goddess. Paul was very careful in his preaching not to blaspheme the religion, the false religion of the people of Ephesus. He reasoned with them and discussed it, but treated their religion with great respect. We're still suffering in Northern Ireland because in times past, Christians have not always uh, publicly treated uh, other views with the respect that Paul would have given them. Now, what was it then that Paul preached? What was his message, particularly to non-Christians in Ephesus? Now, we went to chapter 20 to get this, and here's what Paul says that he's telling the elders what he preached in Ephesus. He says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Those were the two foundations of the message that Paul preached to everybody, Jews in Ephesus, and also anyone who wasn't a Jew, uh, Paul refers to them as Greeks. And there were two steps necessary to become a true Christian. First, they had to turn to God in repentance, and secondly, they had to have faith in our Lord Jesus. Uh, this is important, actually, in the context of chapter 19, because the first incident in chapter 19, we get a group of people who had repented, but did, had not yet put their faith in the Lord Jesus. The people, they had John's baptism, a baptism for repentance, but they did not know about the Lord Jesus. So we start with a group who had turned to God in repentance, but they did not have faith in our Lord Jesus. Later we get a group, those people who burned the book, their own books. It says, those who had believed confessed. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Now that's interesting. 
Here were people, we might say, who had faith in the Lord Jesus, but they had not yet repented. But something drove them to repentance. They confessed what they had done. They hadn't done this before, but now they had done it. So it's interesting that uh, Paul's ministry, it starts with a group of people who had repented, but had not yet had faith, put their faith in the Lord Jesus. This second group had not repented, although they had put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, to be a Christian, you've got to do both. So let's look at what it means, firstly, to repent. That first group of people were disciples of John the Baptist, a result of the rather damaging and incomplete ministry of Apollos. I hope he'll forgive me if I meet him in heaven. But these people knew they were sinners. They were aware of their guilt. They knew they were not ready to meet God, and so they had repented and been baptized as a sign that they were repenting. But they had not really turned to God. They had turned away from their sin, but they hadn't turned to God, and they certainly hadn't put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And it was only when they trusted in the Lord Jesus that they became Christians. But what about this group who believed but had not initially repented? You notice who they are. These, in fact, well, it was slightly more than the people who burned their books, but it included a number who had practiced sorcery. Now, here were people who were maybe in the church, but they were still practicing sorcery. If you had asked them at the time, they would have said, well, this is our business. It's only a business. I don't believe it, but business is business. And these scrolls that we have are very valuable, and they make us a lot of money. Do you expect us to give, to throw our business away? So at first, they didn't. But something caused them to repent, something major. And uh, something caused them uh, generalized repent, and their repentance was not simply saying a quiet sorry to God into themselves. It was very costly, three million pounds, as we have seen, and it was very public. They burned their books in public. Notice it was their own books. They didn't burn other people's books. They only burned their own books as a mark of repentance, as a public statement saying, what we have been building our business on and our lives on is complete fake. They could have even sold their books to others who wanted to carry the business on, but they didn't do that. They said, this must be destroyed. They were making a very public statement in Ephesus that this whole spirit world, this whole mythology that they had been pushing, that it was based on lies. At least part of it was. They totally repudiated their use of these books and they confessed the wrong that they had done in continuing to be involved in it after they believed. That was true repentance, burning and destroying their whole worldview and admitting publicly that their previous worldview had been all wrong. So what prompted their confession of their sin? Well, it was this interesting case of the seven Jewish exorcists called the seven sons of Sceva. 
As a result of what happened, those men were beaten. They came to drive out an evil spirit. They obviously weren't able to drive out evil spirits. Whether they even believed in evil spirits, we don't know. But their spells weren't able to drive out the evil spirits, and so they invoked the name of of Jesus. The passage always speaks of the Lord Jesus. They just used Jesus. They said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And they got the shock of their lives. Because the man, or the demon in them, the evil spirit, spoke and said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of. But I've never heard of you lot. And he turned on, beat them up, and left them uh, bleeding uh, and naked. And when people in Ephesus heard about that, they were shocked and they were afraid. What they had discovered was that the spirit world, well, they discovered three things. They discovered that the spirit world was real. And the business people who had perhaps just thought of it as a way of making money and who didn't believe the mumbo-jumbo, they suddenly discovered that there is a real spiritual world. It actually exists. Secondly, they discovered that these spirits were evil spirits, violent and angry. If they needed evidence, there were seven pieces of evidence in hospital showing that these spirits were evil and violent and destructive, worse than, more violent than the Ephesians themselves. Dabbling in the spirit world is not benign. It's a real world and it's dangerous. And the third thing that they discovered was only the name of the Lord Jesus has authority over the evil spirits. Luke says, the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor as a result of this. Notice the name of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is not merely supernatural, the people discovered. He is the Lord of all creation. He's the Lord of things visible and invisible. And it was the discovery of this truth, the truth about their sin and about who Jesus is, that led these people to full repentance. So I just want to end with this question. If our society and our thinking has become a bit like that of Ephesus, how do people nowadays become Christians? Well, the message is the same as Paul says to everybody. I have declared both to Jews and Greeks, basically everybody in the world, that there are two steps to becoming a Christian. First, to turn to God in repentance, real repentance, And secondly, to have faith in our Lord Jesus. So how do people turn to God in repentance? What does it mean in practice if you're wondering, have I repented? Well, it means admitting that your, firstly, your whole worldview is wrong. Your whole outlook, your whole way of thinking about God or about this world is wrong, that you reject it. And if it was written on a book, you would burn that book. That's the first part of repentance. Now, what does it look like in practice? Well, let me give you some possible examples. But maybe there's someone here, you were brought up in what we call a Christian home. But you maybe turned against that, rebelled against your Christian upbringing. You stopped believing in God, and you've been having your own personal rebellion against God, against church, and against Christianity. Maybe say to yourself, Christian church is full of hypocrites. But when someone like that discovers, as those people in Ephesus did, 
that it's actually true, that there is a God, that the Bible is true. When you discover that you've been rebelling against the truth, confession, sorry, repentance involves firstly confessing that you've been wrong, that your whole view of the world has been wrong. It means that you surrender, that you say the rebellion is over, the war is over. You lay down your arms and you surrender to God. Now, that's not an easy thing. You have to swallow your pride. But I know there are many of you here, and you did that at one time in your life. You stopped rebelling. You said to God, I was wrong in my rebellion. And your whole outlook, your whole mindset and worldview was utterly changed, and it was the best thing you ever did. Or perhaps you've been brought up in a culture that has told you from the very beginning, there is no God. Religion is false. It's for weak people, but we are scientific. And uh, you've been brought up to believe that there is no God, that science can explain everything or will eventually, and that there's no longer any need to believe in God. But then perhaps something happens to you and you discover that God actually exists. What does repentance involve? Well, it involves admitting openly, even in your own culture, openly that your whole view of the world and outlook on life has been wrong. means openly rejecting your previous dismissal of God. And again, that may be difficult. But the message that that sends out to your own culture may not be popular. In today's world, uh, admitting that your uh, atheism was wrong, that you have discovered that God actually exists, that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is. But if it's true, you've got to say it. Or perhaps you're a person who is familiar with the Christian message and sympathetic to it. It's just that you don't see the need to take sides. You maybe analyze it and you think it's quite good, it's maybe even better than the others, but you don't commit yourself to it. You live your own life and go your own way. Repentance for someone like that means recognizing that it's impossible for two different worldviews to be true at the same time. And that if you don't accept the, uh, the Christian worldview, as the Bible puts it, you're living a lie. And if Christianity is true, then all other worldviews, as we have seen in Ephesus, are false. They may be well-meaning uh, religions, well-meaning worldviews and philosophies, but the key question is, is it true? And if it's true, repentance means you commit yourself to that. That is turning to God in repentance. And what about having faith in our Lord Jesus? Just very briefly, just two points. Faith means entrusting your life to the Lord Jesus. Not asking for occasional advice, but committing yourself to trusting him with your whole life, your future, your career, your family, all your problems, your whole self, to having faith in the Lord Jesus and saying, Lord Jesus, I am now your responsibility. I can trust you. And notice that Paul says, having faith in our Lord Jesus. Not a philosophy, not joining a church for friendship, but accepting that Jesus is Lord of all creation and Lord of your life, your personal Lord. And as a mark of doing those two things, Christians have always asked that people who do that get baptized as a public statement of those two things. 
You may have seen baptisms in our church here, and often the elders will ask the person, have you confessed, do you confess your sins, and have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus? So have you repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus? If you're not a Christian this morning, if you haven't done those two things, I just leave that challenge with you. The same message as at Ephesus, but a challenge to your whole outlook on life, your whole personality, your whole self, uh, challenging you to turn to the God uh, of the Bible in the Lord Jesus. So let's just bring our time together to a close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for how up-to-date the Scripture is. We thank you that the gospel that came to Ephesus so long ago is still transforming societies all over the world. It is still the power of God to save people. Father, I just take a moment to pray for anyone here who may not yet be a Christian but who is thinking about it, and we pray that they would understand what needs to be done to become a Christian and that they would take that step. So accept our thanks for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.